Ephesians chapter 6. That's where we are, finishing up our series in Ephesians. And uh, just to let you know, we are slowing down in this section, verses 10 through 20, uh, just to learn about spiritual warfare, but also because this is really the, the final section of this letter. And it's a conclusion or a summary of sorts. It's really a way to apply all that Paul's been talking about previously, all the things we've learned about previously, all these things that we have in the gospel, all these blessings, these gospel blessings of forgiveness and new life and um, being chosen in Him and the Holy Spirit being in us and being made into a people and called to be a people, all these wonderful gospel blessings and all these gospel results that flow from this new life, all these things that are commanded uh, and results from the gospel. That's really what the letter's been about. So here in this paragraph is a way to live this out. And, it, and we've been learning in this section just about this cosmic conflict. Actually, the entire letter uh, talks about this. And we're learning about this cosmic conflict that goes on. And in this, the importance of, of being engaged in the battle and in the importance of taking advantage of all that we have in the Lord. He is for us, and if He's for us, none can be against us. That's the good news in this section. So We're going to continue to look here and learn, and, and if you are here, a first-time guest, welcome. Um, we're glad you're here. Today's message in this little sub-series in Ephesians is a little different uh, in that we'll be going a lot of other places in Scripture to learn about the truth contained in Ephesians 6. A little more of a rigorous journey through the Bible than we normally have. Normally, we're pretty much in one place in the Scripture. Um, so just to let you know that, um, and we had a Q&A last week. We can't have one this week because we have VBS, but we'll have some more time as we go through this series. And also, just to let you know who I am, if you're a guest, um, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's my privilege to bring God's Word most Sundays. And let's ask Him to speak to us through His Word to change our lives as a result. It's amazing that the living God wants to speak to us and He's here with us. So let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for Your grace. We thank You, Lord, that, that You rule and reign and You have come to rescue us from sin and death and the evil one. And You've given us Your Word that we might experience that rescue that we might know it and live in it and live it out and share it with others so thank you lord thank you for this thank you for your kingdom and i pray heavenly father as as i teach and proclaim your word today would you use this and use what i'm doing lord by your grace to bring your kingdom to teach us to transform us to rule and reign over our lives and through our lives um, in this community as well we pray Thank you, God, that this is your intent and you're here to speak to us. We want to hear from you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Look with me at verses 11 through 13 of chapter 6. It says, Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. 
God's Word from Ephesians 6, 11 through 13. And the whole section here is about the armor of God, and, and at the core of this passage, we, we learn the reason that we need to put on the whole armor of God is that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So in this message, uh, which is a continuation from last week, we are learning that we need to know our enemies, that in order to understand why and how we put on the armor, we need to know the, the enemies. It says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, we wrestle against these enemies. So it is important for us to take time to slow down and get to know our enemies. It's important to get to know our enemy. Um, knowing your enemy is really, and knowing your opponent is really important in whatever realm you're in. Up until the famous experiments of Louis Pasteur, where he proved the effects of microorganisms, the prominent theory for disease was that it resulted from an imbalance of four basic humors. Actually, we have a little overhead to show. So the, uh, the theory previously was that disease came from these four basic humors or kind of fluids uh, in your body that were out of balance. It was introduced, this idea of why you got sick was introduced uh, by Hippocrates, the famous Greek physician. Um, and he believed that to cure the sickness, you had to either remove or add some of these different fluids. The four fluids were black bile. They found all kind of gross. Black bile, yellow bile, phlegm, and blood. And in, in some theorized that this might have come from observing what blood does when you just set it aside in regular conditions, uh, that, that it will kind of separate into four different things. A clot at the bottom, that's the black bile. A, a layer of unclotted uh, erythrocytes, the blood. A layer of white blood cells, of called the phlegm. And then a layer of clear yellow serum, the yellow bile. Whatever reason it came from, this is a prominent theory. Actually, do you know it's a theory behind a personality as well? Have you ever heard someone being described as phlegmatic or sanguine. Um, those are words we use for personality. And an idea was that those with too much blood were sanguine. They were the optimistic ones. Those with too much phlegm were phlegmatic. They were calm. Those with too much yellow bile were choleric, emotional. And those with too much black bile were melancholic or sad. That was a theory. And we still use those words. Isn't that wild? Um, it may all sound real, really intriguing and fairly innocent, uh, unless you were sick back then. Then you were in for some trouble. And you may know this, that George Washington actually died as a result of the treatment in line with this theory. He got a really bad sore throat. He wasn't that old. Uh, he was relatively healthy. And he got a really bad sore throat. So in the middle of the night, they called the doctor. It was like 2 a.m. And uh, his sore throat was really bad. It was his throat was starting to close up. And so they thought that the problem was there was too much blood, the, the humor, the blood humor, there was too much. So they drained 40% of his blood out of his body to try to make him get better. And then they did other things for other bodily fluids to get out of his body. So basically, it's most likely he died from lack of blood and dehydration um, because of this theory. So when it comes to disease, it's really important to know your enemy, isn't it? It isn't imbalanced tumors, but it's microorganisms. You have to know your enemy. And, and similarly, in the spiritual realm, we need to know our enemy. It's important to understand who our enemy is. Now, this is a second part to a two-part message. I had to break it into two weeks. So if you weren't here last week, I just encourage you to, to listen to the one from last week. It's available on our website. It's available on podcast and 
and SoundCloud as well. Uh, so you can listen to that. Uh, and this would be a continuation from that. So I think there are notes, and I'm still going to follow those notes, the second half of those notes if you have them. Um, so last week we covered the first two points. Last week uh, we covered uh, this idea that the devil is a chief enemy. He's a chief enemy. Um, often we will focus in our spiritual battle, and, and, and when I say spiritual warfare, I, I mean for the believer who wants to follow Jesus, who wants to live in faith and obedience, who wants to live in new, the new identity in Christ, um, and wants to walk with God's people on God's mission, the battle that we face and all the things that oppose us from doing that, from living in the fruit of the Spirit, living in faith, living in obedience, all the things that resist us. That's the spiritual war that we're in, the spiritual battle that we're in. And I would venture to say every Christian is aware of that battle, right? Are you aware of the spiritual battle in your life? Yeah, I am. It's a reality. So, so Paul is uh, speaking here in this letter about this battle that we're really all aware of. And in this battle, it's important to understand our enemy. Often we overemphasize other enemies. We often emphasize the, uh, our sin, our own brokenness, our flesh, the sinful nature in us. And we learned last week that the devil is a chief enemy in this passage. It says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the evil one against the devil, and it describes him and his forces after that. And it's interesting just that, that stark statement that would by itself might lead us to think that actually it's all about wrestling with the devil. It's not flesh and blood. Uh, it's not meant to stand on its own because we'll get into this today. It's connected to other things such as our indwelling sin. But often we emphasize our own sinful struggles alone in our battle. And so we spent time last week learning that Ephesians 6 and the rest of the Bible is clear and unashamed of the truth that the devil is a chief enemy in our spiritual battle, the devil and his minions. We learned that the devil is not alone. He has a vast array of fellow evil spirits and perhaps as many as a billion or or more. Um, We talked about that. Who exert influence over the world according to the different ranks and functions of of this array, this array of evil forces. Ephesians 6 teaches us that. So we looked at other places in Scripture that say the same sort of thing and establish that reality. That there, there, there are these rulers and authorities. There are these forces of evil out there. This reality of that. And then we finished last week with the truth that we'll finish with today as well. That Christ has triumphed over these evil forces through His death for sin and His resurrection from the grave, in Him we are freed from the devil's grip. We are freed from fear of death and sin. And we're given greater authority now in Christ than even the devil and his minions. That's the good news. That's where we finished. We didn't have time to go into some of these other things. So um, we also talked about in that that God's plan is, is to displace the evil one's influence on the world by God's people coming to Him and thriving and growing throughout the world. Part of the background to the Great Commission to go to all the nations is this cosmic battle where these evil forces would try to exert influence over all the nations. We're to go to the nations and share Christ and grow in Christ and love our neighbors and and be a, a, a viable witness and viable church throughout the world. That's part of God's plan. 
So this week, we're going to continue addressing some of this. And the next thing I want to address is is not that just that the devil is a chief enemy, not that the devil isn't alone, but that the devil works with other enemies. The devil works with other enemies or allies. In particular, the the devil has two powerful allies. Two powerful allies that he uses to try to gain an advantage in our lives. He, He uses these allies, he leverages these allies, and there's an interaction among these these three evil allies to gain some sort of leverage over us in our spiritual lives. So we're going to look at Scripture. Ephesians, of course, talks about this earlier on. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 3. We can see in this paragraph, these three allies actually all listed if we look through that. So I'll just read through it and we'll, we'll touch on the three allies that are present in this paragraph. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So speaking here about where we were before Christ, what it was like, what life was like. And it describes this, this experience that we all walked in. We walked in under the influence, under really the, the authority of, three, of these three evil allies. One was, we followed the course of the world. Verse 2, we followed the course of this world. That's the world. And when the Scripture talks about the world, it doesn't mean the world uh, like the globe. It doesn't mean the world uh, as the entirety of of all humanity. It means basically broken humanity, broken broken and sinful humanity, the aspects of culture and humanity that are, are that are fallen and, and in rebellion against God. So so in every culture there are things that are evil and, and of the world. And there might be good things too. So when it speaks of this it means the, the human system apart from God. So we once walked in following the course of this world. We followed the ways of the world. This, this evil enemy and fellow ally with the other evil forces. And then next, in verse 2, it says, following the prince of the power of the air. So not only do we follow the world, but we follow the prince of the power of the air. The prince, again, that word is ruler. It's used throughout. So the ruler of the air, it means that this, this heavenly realm uh, that they're in the heavenly realm and, and connected to the world, there is this prince of the power of the air. He's at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, our sinful nature, our fallenness. So all three are right here, right? Do you, do you see that? Can you see all three of these evil forces, all three of these enemies? That's the reality of life. That's the reality of spiritual evil that's out there. There, there are these Three enemies. And you'll see these three enemies throughout Scripture. And what I want to do is take some time just to dig into some of the Scriptures so you get to see that. Because I think in knowing our enemies, we need to understand there are three of them and we need to understand how they interact. And I think when we study all three of them, when we look at what the Scripture says and then understand how they interact, we can do a much better job with the armor. We understand why and how we use the armor. And, I, and my hope is in doing this uh, today and in this series that you'll actually have very real helpful ways to battle together with God's people in your spiritual battle. So 
Uh, let's just kind of look at some other verses. James chapter 4. And if you have your own Bible, turn there so you can look with your own Bible in your hands. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. We'll have it projected. But James chapter 4. James is instructing God's people. And he says in, in chapter 4, verse 1, What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That's just verse 1. So when there's conflict that you have in your marriage or your family or your church, what's going on? When there's a, when there's a battle going on, right? A spiritual battle going on, that there's conflicts, what's the cause? Is it not this, James says, that your passions are at war within you? So your, your broken humanity, your, your weakness, your sin, the things that you want apart from submitting to God, they're at war within you. And so you fight. And you get into conflict. And then in that same section, this is all one section in James, verse 4 he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So he, you adulterous people, what he means is that you're, you're trying to two-time God here. You're trying to two-time God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? To, to embrace the ways of the world is to be an enemy of God. You can't have it both ways. You can't two-time God. So he's saying the causes of conflicts and these problems are passions. And then essentially the cause of these conflicts and passions are related to your fact that you're two-timing God, that you're, you're trying to embrace the values of the world and God. Says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God because the world is opposed to God. So we see one, right? The flesh to the world. And now verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil... And he will flee from you. So there's the third enemy, the devil. The devil's at work in all this. The devil's at work in, in leveraging the sinful nature and leveraging the ways of the world. And he's coming in somehow, combining with these two other enemies to, to stir things up and to cause fights and conflicts and so forth. Have you ever, those of us who are married, have you ever kind of come to that realization that there's more going on here than just the fact that we disagree over the toothpaste cap? You know, it, it, you know, it really doesn't matter a whole lot, you know, or the, the toilet paper or whatever, you know, the, which way the toilet paper roll goes. Um, have you ever had one of those conflicts where you're like, you, I mean, you find yourself like really angry and agitated and, and it's like something totally ridiculous, you know? Uh, you know, whether there should be two spoonfuls of beans on my plate or one. I mean, that, that stuff happens. It happens to me. Maybe everyone's laughing, so I, I don't think I'm alone. Are you laughing at me or are you laughing with me? Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. It's all right if you laugh at me. I don't mind. Um, there's a lot about me you can laugh at. So, uh, yeah. And have you ever had that? And, and you realize, boy, there's like something got stirred up in me. All of a sudden I took offense. You know, she should know I always do one scoop of beans. What she does all these years, you know, we've been married and she just doesn't she love me? Two scoops of beans, you know, and something gets stirred up in you. And then, you know, it's a way of the world, right? Because, like, I should be respected. I must be the man of the house, you know, and, and just that, that worldly sense of, of authority versus a godly sense. And then there's times Peg and I will just realize, you know what? The enemy's been all in this stuff, hasn't he? This is ridiculous. It's just like, you know, there were these thoughts that came in at the right moment in the conflict just to kind of 
stoke the fire. And it can go bad places too, can it? If, if we allow it to continue. So James 4 helps us tremendously to understand our enemies and actually gives us wonderful things about how to resist the enemy. James 4 fits hand in glove with Ephesians 6, 10-20. We can look elsewhere in Scripture. 1 John chapter 2 gives us a similar picture, uh, mostly talking about the, the world and the flesh here. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Again, that, that means that the sinful, broken things in the world. It doesn't mean don't love trees or mountains. It means don't love the, the sinful, evil things. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, so what's in the world? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So the things in the world actually that make the world bad is, is fleshly humanity, right? The sinful nature of humans together in concert creating culture and systems that oppose God. So those two interact that way, you see, in, in 1 John 2. You saw this next verse quickly. Uh, I'll cover it last week. Colossians 2, wonderful verse. Uh, but it talks about the triumph of Christ. And His triumph is over both our sin and the ruler. So it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The wonderful good news that all of my sins, all of the, my offenses against God, all the ways that I've chosen to go my own way and rebel against God, all those times that I've thought or desired or acted out in not loving God or loving others, all my sin, nailed to the cross, paid, forgiven, past, present, future, simply by putting my faith in Christ. Wonderful good news, isn't it? Glorious good news to remember that. And then it says, with that though, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So His death on the cross not only paid for my sins, but it was a triumph over the enemy. Over the enemy's hold in my life. Over the enemy's hold in, on humanity. It's triumph. He overcame. He, he turned things upside down. The enemy meant the cross for evil. Otherwise, He he had understood what was coming through the cross, he wouldn't have provoked people to crucify Christ. And God turned that around to create not only victory, forgiveness for our sins, but to overturn his authority by, by, by taking authority, by fulfilling all righteousness and creating a new humanity, forgiven and in Christ. Wonderful good news. But it, it addressing these two enemies in that particular context. Just a, another little bit on how these interact. To, uh, and we'll take more time in this series to go through this. I really want to help you understand practically how it works. But in Ephesians chapter 4, we're told uh, to not give in to anger and thus give the enemy a place in our lives. So it says this in chapter 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your, on your wrath. And we took time to preach through this, go through this as a church. And then it says this in verse 27, nor give place to the devil. This is the New King James. I chose it because it says place. And the word there can be translated as foothold, place, or opportunity. It, it's the word used for a place, a geographical place. The idea is it's a leverage point. Do not give the devil a leverage point. In this particular context, it's related to anger in relationship with others. And then it says in John 14.30 about Jesus, this is Jesus near the end when He was getting ready to go to the cross. He says, I will not speak much more with you, 
for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has, we have this verse to show if we could, Dan, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Maybe we don't have it. John 14.30. And he has nothing in me, Jesus says. So, so the rule of this world is coming, Jesus says at the end. He's coming now in, in the crucifixion. He's going to come and he's going to execute what he wants to do. Jesus is allowing him to do that. It's going to be a dark, dark hour. But Jesus says he has nothing in me. He has no place in me. He has no leverage in me. Jesus walked perfectly in faith, even in terrible temptation. And the enemy never had leverage on him. No place. And what happens in our lives is when we allow the enemy leverage in our lives, when we follow the ways of the world, when we indulge the sinful nature and allow those things to lead us and kind of shape our lives, the enemy gets in and now he has a place to exert leverage. He gets a place to, to tempt us, to, to accuse us, to condemn us. And it can be a variety of just, you know, interpersonal conflict like I was illustrating. But it also can be a more extreme variety if you've given yourself to those things over a prolonged time where, where his influence on you is, is overwhelming and even you may, come, you may be at the place where you feel like, like you're just under, under his control. Now for the believer, we have authority so you're never under his control fully. But you may allow yourself to come under his influence by giving him a place in your life to leverage in and, and influence you. Perhaps greatly. And there are certain things, certain, certain sins, certain ways we give in, uh, and particularly when they're done habitually over a long time, where we can give him a lot of influence in our lives. Lies that we believe. Sins that we engage in. Uh, things, that, things that would give him great leverage, that he can come in and, and exert quite a bit of control. But that's how it works. So let's look uh, actually in Scripture at an example where this actually happened. Acts chapter 5, and you can just put that verse up. There you go, you got it. Uh, Acts chapter 5. Um, this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They are husband and wife, and this particular section is just about Ananias. They are part of the Jerusalem church. They are believers. From everything we see here, we're to understand, I, I think the Scripture makes it clear, we're to understand them as believers. They're part of the church. And so this action is not God dealing with people outside the church. This is God disciplining those in His church. That's what's going on here. So understand, these are believers. And, and let's read what happens. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. A little background. Uh, the church is giving uh, to care for those in, in their context who have needs. There's a lot of Christians who are part of this new church and there's needs, and so people are giving. And so Ananias and Sapphira decide, we're going to give too, but then they keep some back, and they misrepresent, is the implication, what they give. They're basically telling everybody, hey, we gave, we sold our whole farm and everything, gave all the money. That's what's going on, okay? They've told that somehow to everybody, yet they've held some back. So, they're, so they have this deceit. And then so listen to what, what goes on, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So he's basically saying, it's your place. You know, it was at your disposal. 
And you could have chosen to give half and tell everybody it was half. Or you could have, but you're, you're lying here is what, what he's saying. So he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Isn't that interesting? So what went on with Ananias? Satan filled his heart and he lied to the Holy Spirit. Filled his heart, he deceived him. He worked, Satan was at work in Ananias, the believer, to the point where his heart was filled. He was overwhelmed by this temptation and he lied. He gave in to create this lie and propagate this lie. And then Peter says in the end of verse 4, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Isn't that interesting? You have not lied to man but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. It's, it's a story of God's discipline of His early church. It's the, the sobering picture. But for our point, I, I just want to point out how it went on. What went on? Ananias, uh, it says that Satan filled his heart. And then it says he contrived this in his heart. So it's both the enemy at work and Ananias at work. Isn't that interesting? And, and they're interacting. There's the, these two enemies attacking Ananias. And, and there's probably the third enemy of the world at work here too. It's not said in the text, but I would imagine that for Ananias and Sapphira there were worldly things going on like false promises of greed and materialism and so forth. Just the worldly ideas that, that said, you know, uh, happiness comes from having lots of money. And therefore, that was factoring in to them and they made this decision. So we see all three enemies at work here in Ananias. And I would say that's often how the battle goes, that, that all three are at work. Not, not necessarily always, but I'd say often all three are at work in our lives to, to come to afflict us. And we need to understand that. And we need to make, not make the mistake of putting all the blame in one or the other. It's not all the devil. It's not all my own sin. It's not all the world. They, they usually work together. And when we understand that, it will really help. And when we don't understand and get it wrong, we'll have a harder time dealing with it. I, I really believe that, that too often we get it wrong. And we don't know how to deal with this spiritual battle that we're in. And we spin our wheels trying to deal with it without understanding the holistic answer. Well, let me, uh, let me illustrate in ways that maybe help you more than maybe you don't relate a whole lot to Ananias. That hasn't happened, thankfully, uh, here in our church. And the early church was different in many ways than us, but very similar in, in others. But anyhow, maybe you can't relate to Ananias. So let me just give you a, a few scenarios. These are not actual people. Um, they, these are just scenarios that are composites from just my experience as a pastor over the years. So I'll give you three scenarios that, that I, I hope will help you understand how this works out, perhaps in your own life or in the lives of those around you. Sam. Sam has been struggling for years with sexual purity. Before he came to Christ, he was involved in all sorts of immoral activities. When he came to Christ, though, he found new power to leave it all behind and live a new life of faith and purity. But lately, he's been struggling. He's been struggling with pornography. He doesn't want to continue, and he's been confessing his struggles to, to other brothers and He's been remembering the gospel with others and trying to avoid temptations. But it seems that every time his mind is silent, all sorts of scenarios come in and fill his mind. He feels flooded by these scenarios and temptations. 
And then often with them, there, there are these, these ideas that come in with these scenarios that, well, this is just part of a healthy sex drive, Sam. There's nothing really wrong with just indulging a little more. God made the sex drive, and, and He's forgiving. So, so don't, don't worry about it. And, and, and Sam often gives in to those things. But as soon as he gives in, he is flooded with condemnation and guilt and feels so low and so slimed spiritually, he struggles to even believe that he could belong to Jesus. And he struggles to think that he can ever, ever get out of this cycle, constant cycle of temptation and failure. Does that sound familiar? Maybe you've known people in a similar struggle. Maybe, maybe you yourself have gone through it. Maybe you yourself are in it right now. And in the story of Sam, we see all three at work, the flesh, the devil, and the world. The world fills Sam's environment with wrong ideas and experiences of human sexuality. Sam's flesh, his broken sinful nature, gets tempted to do wrong. And the enemy, the devil, comes in to tempt and harass. And then once he gives in, after he tempts him, he pours out condemnation on Sam to make him feel low and to live there. Let me give you another scenario. Sally. Sally grew up in a very unstable family situation. Her mom and dad fought all the time. They finally divorced. She was left with her mom and her younger siblings. And she found a, some degree of comfort in boyfriends who were interested in her and pretty early on ended up with one who abused her, treated her with contempt. But amidst some pretty miserable years with this guy, the influence of a good friend, she started coming to church. And she discovered the love and forgiveness that's in Christ. And in her new faith, she found strength along with her support of her friends to leave this abusive boyfriend and be on her own. At first, for Sally, it seemed like a totally new day and a new life for her. But then the old fears and feelings started coming back. She felt alone. She felt that she was too ugly and undesirable to ever have a good, godly boyfriend. Her self-loathing got worse and worse, and she found some relief by returning to some of her old habits that seemed to bring relief in the past, like cutting and food binges. These things made her feel better momentarily, but then she would feel overwhelmed, overwhelmed with guilt and loneliness and failure. And this lingering thought that God, even God, couldn't love her and maybe it would be better just for her to end her life. In this scenario, Sally has been influenced by the world in her experience of her self-image and how she sees herself, how she sees relationships. She's been tempted by her flesh to be drawn after sin and then she gives in to the enemy as he comes in and ratchets things up in temptation. And then once Temptation has its way. He pours on condemnation. Two scenarios that are composites, not actual people, but I would say very similar to real ones. Let me, let me give you a third. Silas. Silas is a brand new Christian. He's come into the church and, and uh, he just loves what's going on. He loves the people. He's never met people like this. And he's thriving in these new relationships. He's, 
He's loving hearing the preaching. Uh, he's part of a small group, loving that. He's involved in Alpha, and, and he's watching God do things. And he says often, this is the best church in the world. And then over time, something happens. He gets into a conflict with his small group leader over talking too much in small groups. And, and, uh, and it doesn't go well. He gets offended. Feels like this guy's being overbearing and controlling. And it starts to just to, to have time. And then uh, he talks to the pastor about it, and he doesn't feel like the pastor really listens to him. He's too quick to bring answers. And then he starts to just kind of feel like the, his experience in church gets shaded by these things. Starts to notice that the, the pastor's preaching, actually, he, he's got a lot of the same illustrations over and over again. They're just kind of a little different. Gets a little tired of that. Too much scripture, too. He's always bouncing around everywhere. Starts to think, you know, there's no one in this church who's like me. No one in my life situation. I feel pretty alone here. And he starts seeing in the church the different things that are wrong. He's more aware of what's wrong with the church than what's right. And he starts to be be suspicious of the motives of the pastors and the leaders. He's depressed. He's discouraged. And he thinks, you know what, probably the best thing for me is just to leave. Maybe I shouldn't be part of church anyhow. Just give up on this whole idea of church. For Silas too, we see different ideas, the, the ways of the world at work. We see the ways of sinful flesh and then the enemy getting in here to bring temptation for Silas. Those are three scenarios, but I imagine um, they're probably familiar to us one way or the other. And all three of those scenarios um, illustrate how these enemies interwork with each other. And what we'll be doing actually in the coming weeks is be digging into this section of Scripture and learning about how to use the armor and how to use these things to battle these enemies. And so I'm going to cover that later, but I know that you're probably feeling like, don't leave me there with Sam and Sally and Silas stuck. (laughs) Help me understand. So let me just give you a little glimpse of a part of how the armor can be applied here to their lives. I really believe that verses 14 to 20 teach us about this, but, but here's what I would do in dealing with, with Sally and Sam and Silas. I would want to talk to them about these things, and I would want to first um, help them understand. I mean, if I'm the pastor that Silas doesn't like, I'm going to say, hey, look, I'm sorry. That I, yeah, I've got to grow out my preaching. Sorry I didn't listen. I want to say that first. I'm not going to come and say, the problem's with you, Silas. I'm going to confess my own sins. But then I want to help Silas just see where he's maybe not walking in the ways of the Lord. I want him to basically confess his sin. And he, have him see that, wow, I've been unforgiving and I need to forgive others as I've been forgiven. Um, and just to help him with that. To help him confess his sins and, and then uh, in to renounce these ways, these worldly ways of bitterness and, and striving and renounce the, the ways of the enemy and the flesh and to even maybe pray with him and have him say that. Lord, I I forgive me for my sins. I don't want anything to do with this old way. And, and then I would have him receive and live, live in the, the forgiveness he has to remember the Gospel, to remember the Gospel blessings that he has, like Ephesians talks about. Thank You, Lord, I'm forgiven. Thank You that You died for me. Thank You that You're for me. So I would want to help him first just apply and receive all the, all the blessings of the Gospel. And then I would probably want to have him even pray and, and work through uh, the, the results of the gospel. So, 
So just to work through uh, the call for, well, I'm talking about Silas or others, I would just want to work through the call of God to this new life. So for Sam and for Sally and for Silas, confessing their sins, receiving the forgiveness we have in Christ, and then even speaking over them the promises of God, the gospel results. So you're a new creation in Christ. You're beloved. You're called to be part of this body to put on display the glory of the gospel by loving one another and living in, the, in these, these new ways. That, that He gives you power. He's written the law in your heart so that you can walk in, in new obedience. And there's just all sorts of things, gospel promises and blessings I would want to share with them and then have them even pray and respond to that. Lord, I thank You that I'm beloved, that You love me with an everlasting love, that, that Your love is, is wider and higher, deeper and longer than anything I could ever know. You love me that you have promised to make me, that I am a new creation, to make me into the image of Christ, that you've placed me in a church to, to together to, to love one another and show the world what Christ looks like. So to work through those things and even pronounce that. So, so gospel, receiving gospel blessings, living in gospel promises or gospel results. Then the third thing I would do is, is I would say, well, now, given that you've repented, given that you've said this is who I am, this is my new identity, now let's command the enemy to go. Because he's been at work leveraging these things, worldly and sinful things in your life. And now, let's just simply command him. You have no place here. There's no place for you here. I'm forgiven. There's no condemnation for me in Christ any longer. I'm a new creation in Christ. So by the authority of Christ, any demonic activity that's around my life, I command you to go and to no longer be in my life. Just to take authority in prayer. That's what I would do. And, that, and then th those truths, basically, I would say it's not just a one-time thing. You just keep cycling through that and deepening in it and learning more about the wonder of forgiveness and more about the wonder of the new life and more about your authority to not have to be harassed by the enemy. I hope that makes sense. And, and we'll get into this more. Uh, I just didn't want to leave you worried about Sam and Sally, Silas, and what they were going to do. I would want to leave them through that. Um, so there are these three enemies. And, um, and it's just important to understand they, they work together. Um, I have no idea how it got to be 1125. Um, let me try to sew things up quickly. Um, I have a graph. to Actually, don't show that yet, Dan, but it, I know there are firefighters in, in the crowd here, so you can't answer this. But uh, does anyone know what the essential elements for a fire are? Right. Good. You guys are great. Is that right? Is that right? Is, I don't know if Eric's here. Fuel, oxygen, uh, and heat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's the triad that starts to fire. Yeah, I was totally blanking out. What's that other thing? Uh, fuel, oxygen, and heat work together. This is the triad, and you take any one of these out, and you can't have a fire. That's, that's so firefighters know that they're either going to take one, two, or three, or all of them out. That's how they stop fires. Well, similarly, in spiritual warfare, there are three enemies. We can show the next one. The flesh, the world, and the devil. And they work together. Now, I wish I could say pull any one of them out and you don't have a fire. That would be nice. Um, I, I don't think Scripture says that absolutely. But generally, if we can pull one of these out and even pull all three of them out, certainly, uh, we reduce the, the likelihood of the fire. So that's just good to know. I hope it's a visual to help you remember. These are our three enemies in alliance together. The world, the flesh, and the devil. They work in cooperation 
And being equipped to understand that and address that is really important. So we don't just address the devil. We don't just command the devil to be gone. All right? Because Jesus actually tells us if you don't deal with what's in the heart, you know, we do have authority to say be gone. He's going to come back. Right? The enemy's going to come back. So we've got to deal with the flesh. We've got to deal with what's going on inside. We've got to confess our sins and renounce these things and embrace our new identity. Even just doing it in prayer and vocally can be very powerful. So we displace. He has no place in us. And then we, we don't allow the world to keep on influencing us. We cut that off. So I'm not going to, if there's something for you that's just a, an influence that's unhelpful, you cut it off. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to look at that stuff anymore. I'm not going to listen to that stuff anymore. And there's some stuff that's explicit, but there's some stuff that for some of us it is worldly and tempting, others are not. But, so, so we, but we have to cut those, thing, those influences off. We can't allow them to influence our mind. We need to re- renew our mind and let them be filled with the truth of Scripture. So all three of these work together. And, and in the battle, we want to address all three. And I do believe Ephesians 6, uh, 10 through 20 help us with that. So the bank will come up and as we close again with the good news. A final thought, the devil is a conquered foe. Just like last week, he's a conquered foe. Our sins have been paid for. Colossians 2, 13-15. He's disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame. Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, something incredible, Luke chapter 10, 18-20, and he's said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In Christ, He has conquered the devil. He has conquered evil. And we belong to Christ simply through faith. Simply by turning from our self-efforts and trusting in Him, we belong to Him and His victory is our victory. And so the armor is just simply walking in that victory. It's, it's not difficult or complex. It's as simple as just walking in what Christ has done for us and all that comes with it. So just as we close, uh, let's just take a minute for reflection. And I'd like just for us to take a minute to, to pray, maybe for you, just as you've listened, uh, like last week you realized, I need help. Help me, Lord. I'm just like that guy Sam, or I'm just like Sally, or I know somebody like that. But just take a minute to ask the Lord for help, and please know that, that your church is here to help you. you know, there are friends perhaps around you. For me and the pastoral leadership team, we are available to help you to walk through these things. So maybe you just need to say, Lord, help me. Maybe you have a friend who needs help, and you can just take a minute to pray for that friend. Maybe for you, this is uh, all brand new, and this idea that there's a a battle is, is new and maybe intimidating. And I just say, if, if you haven't yet, put your faith in Christ. Take this minute to say, Jesus, I don't want to fight battles. I don't want to do these things anymore. I need you. And just take a minute to say, Jesus, I give my life to you. I, I receive what you've done. So let's take a minute to do that. Pray silently before the Lord, and then we'll close in song together.